Hello, I'm Brandon Martini, a commercial pilot and flight instructor. And I'm Carson Vasquez, I'm a private pilot. And you're listening to the Aviation Mentors Podcast, sponsored by Stratus Financial. So buckle up, because the Aviation Mentors are taking off. Welcome back, everybody, to another awesome and amazing episode of the Aviation Mentors Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, today, we actually have uh, a rare occurrence. Uh, we talk about doing a lot of interviews, and to be honest, Carson and I's schedule is not allowed for very many of them to happen in the past uh, few months, uh, although we used to do interviews every single episode, and now it's just been us blabbering and talking about something fun uh, and some, some type of flying for the past few months. Uh, but today is a new day. Uh, we're recording some uh, some videos, so our producer Mark should be sending some of that up after we're done today. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. And uh, we're going to uh, actually uh, have a brand new guest today. So I'm really excited uh, to have our guest and Carson's going to give the intro on him and uh, welcome. Well, today's guest uh, is Dave Rohe. And of course, great to meet you, Dave, and uh, glad to have you on the podcast. Dave has done a lot of flying over his uh, entire career, uh, everything from bush flying to the airlines and everything in between, including aircraft maintenance, which is pretty great uh, experience wise. And also one of the topics our listeners really like to listen to. So Dave, thank you for being on with us. And the first question we always ask is, how did you get into aviation? Um, well, first of all, guys, thank you so much for you know giving me the chance to talk about my love. Okay. Um, very young, uh, we were born in Aruba and my dad was working for the oil company and we lived about half a block away from the international airport. And because the wind is always from one prevalent, uh, area all the time, we were at where they came into land, right over our house. Okay. <laughs> and from the time I guess I was three or four years old, my mom would take me for a walk in the stroller. And of course I wanted to go where the airplanes, the airplane, airplane. So we hung out there, and when I was five and six years old, she could only find me at the fence hanging on there looking at the airplanes until, i tell you what, one of the jets was taken off, and I was so close, I got speckled with hot sand in my face. And she said, that's it. Well, what do I do now? I started building, well, I started off with paper airplanes, <laughs> and then I got into model airplanes, and that was it, guys. Um that, that'll suck you in, honestly. It's something you can't get out of. Once you have something in your hand that you can actually make play, it, it changes your perspective. So that got me hooked. And then on top of that, my uncle was a civil engineer. And he said to me, look, man, I don't think you understand what aerodynamics is all about. Six, seven years old. What the heck is this? But he clued me in, and it set me up for life. Um... And my parents sent me to British Guyana to go to school because they didn't want us learning Dutch. And I started my love again, I guess, of airplanes by joining the Aeromodeler Club, 10 years old. And I met a friend there who's been a friend of mine for the last 60-something years. He and I did everything together. We flew airplanes, gliders, radio control, control line, team racers. I don't know if you know what that's all about with control line flying. I do like control line flying. I, I did a little control line flying in uh, uh, in Oshkosh with my with my son uh, for several years in a row. Now he's a little bit, I think he feels like he's too old for it. And 
to be honest, I did it one time and I got so dizzy. It was ridiculous. Just spinning <laughs> around in a circle. Uh, I can't do that anymore, but you're going around and around. If, if anybody's listening and they've never seen what controlled line flying is, I never knew what it was until I went to Oshkosh. So go check it out. It's, it's, it's kind of cool. I mean, it's cool for kids for sure. And Dave, you, it sounds like you've been doing this a very long time. You said your friends were 60 something years. What year do you think you're, uh, that, that you got your passion for flying. What year was that? What year did that start at? Uh, I would say 1948. 1948. That's two years. You almost beat my Cessna 120 that I've got. I have a 1946 <laughs> Cessna 120. Uh, oh. So I got close. <laughs> 1948 to 50 because you went to Ghana in 52. Yes. So that got me. That's my beginning. Okay. And never stopped. And as Carson had said, I've done just about every kind of flying you can imagine, all right? What did I love most? Guys, I can't tell you. I've experienced the good, the bad, the indifferent. I've got some horrifying stories. I'm still alive, so I've lived through them. <laughs> um, bush flying was probably the most unique, okay? Uh, in that you're a single engine flying over the bush. No radio. We didn't have a VOR in those days. So you're flying ADF, if some of you guys remember what an automatic direction finder is, okay? So you're outbound from something with at the whimsy of the winds because there are no winds aloft forecast either. I mean, you're in the interior of the bush in South America. There's nothing. Matter of fact, here's a fun fact. We used to say, hey, guys, I'm doing IFR. Yeah, you're flying IFR? Yes, I follow the river. Because <laughs> that's the only thing you could fly in. Let's see inside of a okay. I've heard of I follow roads, but I guess if you're in the jungle, that might be I follow rivers. No roads in the jungle, guys. No. That's true. Uh, uh, so in that sense, I guess, um, I learned early and on. And ah, you'd ask me about my background. I was never the greatest student, okay, quite frankly. I mean, I, I love geography. There are things that led me into like physics and chemistry. And my uncle, my second uncle now, who was a physics teacher, he said to me, you know something, guy, you've got to take some of this science in. Well, I did. And what happened is after I graduated, I went to the Government Technical Institute and I learned mechanical and electrical engineering. That's the best thing I want to talk to young people about at some point. If you have good basics, nothing will escape you in that sense. Okay? So you need to learn the basics. So from that uh, humble beginning, I got into an apprenticeship with the, with the National Airline. And that also set me up for mentors. Two engineers were my greatest friends, mentors, kind of took me under their wing, taught me everything they could. By the way, even though I did a lot of engine work, one of the things I really loved was sheet metal. I actually became an expert sheet metal mechanic, changing wing uh, spars, doing a lot of stuff because, of course, seaplanes, which are with the base I was at, uh, lots of corrosion, salt water, okay? So constantly every night we were looking for corrosion, and then I learned how to protect metal against corrosion. Great beginnings. Now, I know you guys had asked me, uh, tell me a little bit what transition, I guess, from maintenance to flying. Well, the sheet metal bay was right next to where we launched the seaplanes, okay? And... The seaplanes actually had two functions. There were only eight, nine passenger uh, seaplanes, the Grumman and Goose, and we used to fly into the bush up a river. And then there was a lot of cargo flights 
further in the interior, also to Robert. I got a question for you on that. Have you ever flown an albatross? Uh, yes, I've flown in an albatross. I never flew it. All right. I got one up on you then, finally. I have an albatross type rating. <laughs> kidding me. I, that is amazing. That is one monster. Well, I got a bigger one for you, though. You know the Sikorsky, the four-engine sucker? It, they only built like seven of those things. It's uh -huh. a fifth-passenger flying boat. Oh, and I worked, oh, yeah, I worked on that in the Antilles airboats in St. Thomas for a couple of years. So um, we're going to talk big airplanes. All right. <laughs> that was something else. The cockpit on a, on a Sikorsky, I don't know about the I remember the Albatross being in it, but the cockpit in a Sikorsky flying boat is like a living room. It could seat like 10 people. I've never seen anything so big. But anyway, what I was getting back to is the seaplane used to launch right outside my the door of my sheet metal bay. And every now and again, they'd be looking, hey, we need an anchor boy. What do you need an anchor boy for? Oh, you got to throw the rope and an anchor because you can't, there's no place to come up on land. So from that, uh, I met my first mentor. As a matter of fact, he only recently passed away from ALS. And I was able to get a commemorative stamp for him from the government because he was literally a national hero. And he got me in an airplane a couple of times. And then I'd be sitting there in the cockpit, not doing anything, I'd go on. And then when we landed in the water, I got to go to the little hatch in the front, throw the anchor, let it grab, and then while they unload the airplane. He said to me once, why don't you fly this thing? And I go, what do you mean? He said, yeah, man, put your hand on it. You know, grab it. I said, man, but I can't fly. He said, let me tell you something. I can teach a monkey to fly, and you ain't no monkey. And I'll tell you something. After four or five flights, hooked, sink, and hook, I'm, I'm just gone. I go, oh, my God, when next? <laughs> let me let me add it, okay? And then at some point, about six months later, I guess, he said, you know something, you've got a natural skill for this. He said, why don't you get your license? I said, mate, I was waiting for you to ask me because I knew he was a flight instructor. So I had a little motorcycle, and every two or three times a week when he was flying, he'd say, okay, get up to the airport, and I'll take get you up for an hour. And that's what happened, man. Me and my buddy, we'd reach right up to the airport at least twice a week. And we'd get an hour each, okay? And listen to this one, guys. I went solo at four hours and 52 minutes. Can you believe that one? That's pretty quick. How did you know it was in 52 minutes? You guys kept down to, uh, I mean, that's not thats not uh, tenths of the hour. That'd be in six-minute increments. So 52 is off by four minutes. Yeah. Well, he was the one that said his four minutes 52. He was on the ground when he walked down here. Oh, okay. The, I could not. It was a Cessna 120. Of course, you got no flap. I couldn't land the sucker because just as I came in on final, the wind gusts hit me and I got the airplane going down the runway and he's taking the shirt off running next to me going, get it down. <laughs> but I did get it down and he got back in here. Please, oh my God, you got solo. So that was the beginning of my journey, I guess, as a pilot. And I mean, 15,000 hours later, mind you, I've had a lot of it. How how is it flying in different countries from the U.S. to South America? Like, what are what are some major differences you've seen? Obviously, I know currently in South America they still use ADFs, uh, which unfortunately uh, they changed the they changed the regulations, and I didn't have to get tested on that. Although I did know how to use one, uh, 
uh, when I when I learned to fly. Uh, Carson got lucky, and he he's not instrument rated quite yet, but he's never going to have to learn how to use an ADF in his life unless he ever wants to go fly in South America. I, I don't know if it's worth uh, learning how to use the ADF. So I've heard and read enough about what a pain they are. Um, I'm just glad for the technology I have now. Yeah. No, quite frankly, it's more trouble than it's worth because procedure turns and doing all this fancy stuff in ADF is not the greatest because the ADF only points it to the station. So it doesn't take into any other consideration like a POR or a radio, you know what I'm saying? So, and you don't need that today. Everywhere, uh, well, not in my day, but everywhere today has got much better um, proficient electronics and radio waves. Okay? So you really don't need that. The nav aids today are unbelievable, okay? But the flying in South America and in the Caribbean is vastly different from the flying they do in North America. Vastly different. I mean, our airspace is so crowded, okay? I worry now about casualties in the air. I'm not even talking about the airplanes are running into each other on the ground, which they are. There are millions and millions of miles. And by the way, I always tell people, flying is the safest form of transportation ever. There's no doubt about it, okay? But it's still hazardous if you don't stick to the road. Flying in South America and in the Caribbean, uh, there's not a lot of, I guess, FAA's rules are very stringent. Now, because a lot of the Caribbean was under the British registry, there's a lot of rules and regulations as well, but they weren't enforced that much. So flying old airplanes, which is my mantra, you know, DC-3s and twin otters and 748s, you, you didn't have a lot to worry about in those days, okay? It was the people that were different. The rules in North America and in Canada and even in some of the other countries I worked in, pretty rigid. But in South America, things are pretty lax. And I also worked for Embraer in Brazil. And I'll tell you, flying between Guyana, Venezuela, Brazil, testament to your fortitude, because guys don't respect flight levels. Okay? You're expecting a guy to be up in the He's flying at some other level. Oh, yeah, we're already descending. Next thing you know, he's right in front of your face going down. Going, what the heck? So nobody pays attention to rules in South America. The Caribbean is a little better, okay? But we're still fighting that scenario. And you guys are lucky today. If you're flying as a young man in most countries, even in the Caribbean, things are a lot more structured, of which I'm happy to talk about, okay? In our day, it wasn't that, wasn't that well structured at all. Um, I'll give you a little, for instance, in British Guyana, this is back in the 60s now, um, one flight, listen to this, one flight at an international airport on a Sunday. That was from Trinidad coming into British Guyana. And the guy in the tower would fall asleep. And <laughs> you'd have to buzz the tower to get a light because he's in there sleeping. Okay. Because, you know, the traffic is not that busy. So those are one of the challenges, I guess, in that sense. North America, you're very rigid, you know. We're, we're in Southern California, and it's it's crazy traffic um, on the sky and the ground, at airports, uh, on our roads. Er, people are just everywhere, and uh, we have so many types of airspaces stacked on top of each other. Um, I, I can imagine it's like you said, an entirely different experience being somewhere where there's so few planes and so few people. Um, but 
you know, aside from from all the people and all the traffic, um, are are the rules relatively the same? Yes, they're relatively the same. Uh, safety of flight is pretty important worldwide, and if we ever get into it, I'll tell you why I went to China to teach pilots over there. Okay, because English is an international language of aviation worldwide, except in China. <laughs> in before 2000, anyway. But they wanted to get the Olympics, and they needed guys like us to be able to come and train their, their new pilots in English. So that's a whole different interview if you ever want to get into it. That's some amazing stories I have about flying in China, okay? And how certain words in Chinese don't translate in English and vice versa, all right? But I think you also wanted to know what transition moved from maintenance into being a pilot. Well, that was kind of an unusual story um, because being uh, learning from a flight instructor and a good friend of mine uh, and a mentor, I also wanted to be a flight instructor. So that was something that was always in the back of my mind. And then, unfortunately, uh, after bush flying, which I have a lot of emergencies to talk about, and a short career with the airline, and that was shortened because of the political situation. I decided to go back to Canada with my family. By that time, I had over 7,000 hours. And unfortunately, I ended up failing the medical for Air Canada. And because I had the, the amount of hours, they said, you know something? We're going to give you another shot. Come back in a month. Because I passed all the other tests, psychological, written, whatever. I came back. I failed it again. And this old, nice old man said to me, you got you got a real problem. He said, we have guys flying for us for probably 30 years with your profound hearing loss. So I suggest you stay away from noise for the rest of your life or you're going to go deaf. Well, to this day, I'm wearing hearing aids. This is my fourth set. So I have to exist like that. But that was the worst day of my life. I figured, oh, my God, I'm done. It took me three days and just tried to reorient myself. And... I started back. I went back to my flight instructor, and then I got into selling, uh, working with the Havilland aircraft. That was one of the neatest things I did because I was a flight instructor now. And because of my maintenance background, I was able to get a job training pilots and mechanics. So that's cool. If you have the basics and you know how airplanes work, that was huge. I never had a challenge from a, from a company that asked me a question that I couldn't answer. Because I know airplanes inside out. I helped to build them. My first job actually at Havilland before the flight school was actually working on the assembly line, assembling to another uh, Dash 7. I don't remember that airplane, four engine, slow burn, and then the Dash 8. Okay, I wrote manuals even. But I loved the training side of it. And that actually catapulted me now into becoming a sales engineer. Well, what's a sales engineer? A lot of people ask me, what, what do you mean? You're a sales engineer? Yes, that's the guy who actually helps the salesman sell the airplane. Because what you do is you do fleet analysis, you do fleet plans, you tell them how many, you know, what's the analysis of how many hours you need to make that airplane be profitable, what the passion load is, a whole bunch of neat stuff. And of course, today it's all computerized. In the old days, you're working out by computer, by hand. All right. So, that's the transition into everything else. One of the stories I always tell a lot of folks when they ask me, how many things you did in aviation? 
I said, I've done every job in aviation except some tickets for an airline. That's about the only thing I didn't do. Did you have to work the, the front of the airline? Did you have to, uh, maybe you didn't sell the tickets. Did you check them in at the gate or anything like that? No, I didn't have to do any of that. that was a- All right. So we're, we're missing gate agent stuff, but that's about it, huh? Gate agent. Oh, boy. Yep. There's a lot of fun stuff there. But it's actually more fun in the airplane. In the old days, when you had four bars in your shoulder, you were the king of the crop. In North America, now, hey, I think Carson just asked that question a little while ago. In South America, you had four bars in your shoulder. You were the king of the crop. Today, in North America, you are not. Four bars are not. It's the base manager that tells you what to do. He's got more control until they push that airplane back. Okay? By that time, you're in control, but now it's not the same. Uh, it's kind of a strange scenario. Okay? I always felt in control in South America. In North America, never had that same feeling. Okay? Um, it's it's kind of a strange evolution, I guess, of aviation in a sense, whereby in the days the captain of the airplane was in control of everything. Okay, as a matter of fact, one of the emergencies I had in South America was them overloading an airplane, and my co-pilot having to write, sign the manifest and not realizing that it actually forged the weights. Okay, so. There, there are some real issues that you need to deal with when you got four bars in your shoulder. Okay, so from from transitioning out of that aspect into flight training, uh, uh, training people, it was a real, I guess, complete change. But what it was is building up experience from all the different things that I've done in the industry. I mean, you ask me about any side of the industry, and I can tell you again. Except being a gate agent or a ticket agent, I've done it. I've cleaned, I've cleaned the bottom of seaplanes with a gas and oil uh, mixture. Why? To stave off saltwater corrosion. And you know how many people don't even know that one? All right. So there's a lot of interesting things that I've done. I think to this day, at 80 years old, I'm 80 this year, I can actually still probably do a hot section on a turbine engine. Because that's the grounding that I had. Okay, um, my buddy and I. Every time there was an engine change, guys would say, "Who wants to work tonight? <laughs> we're, we're here, guys. We don't want to go home." Okay, so we did a lot of that work, which grounds you in every side of flying an airplane. Now, the corollary. Let me change hats for a second. Coming now to talk as a mentor for young people, the airlines maybe 25 years ago started asking for people with more computer skills. But I've actually flown in an airplane as a captain with a co-pilot who didn't know how to fly an airplane. I kid you not. He knew how to manage an airplane. He knew how to manage all the systems. But physically, he didn't really understand what goes on with a a center of gravity, the basics that we learned as kids. Okay? So that's why, as a mentor now, I started talking to people about how things fly. That's the first thing I have. And just to give you an example, I'm going to show you something. I don't know if you guys would have ever seen this. This is by a, a Jewish inventor, a paper airplane with a motor. This thing flies amazing. Okay. Now, I'm teaching young people with this one as well. Okay. Why things fly? Before you get an airplane and you know how computers work and you're a genius with a tech, all right, or the navades or whatever, you're going to know how to operate the airplane. 
And if you remember not too long ago when the 737 problem occurred, it was not knowing how to overcome these forces, right? They were trying to nosedive the airplane. <laughs> if you're not familiar with all the basics of flight and the mechanics of flight and how the pieces of the aircraft work, whether it's the ailerons or the flap system or any of the interconnects, you really are, you know, you're actually not being in full control of that airplane. I really agree with you on that. The problem with most people today is they learn how to use an autopilot they learn how to press buttons um, and with these all with all these digital cockpits it's really difficult for for especially new pilots to learn the the appropriate skills that are needed i'm a big proponent of of feeling the airplane i tell people stop looking at everything stop looking at the airspeed um, one of my i mean stop looking at everything you need to feel what the airplane's doing you need to understand what it feels like if you're gonna if you're gonna stall, um, what it feels like if uh, if you have flaps in, don't have flaps in. Feel the airplane a little bit. Like th those are kind of the general skills you re you really need to know uh, when you're learning how to fly, uh, because what's going to happen when your airspeed indicator doesn't work uh, one day? Uh, what's going to happen when your flaps uh, don't get extended when you think they're going to happen? Like those are all situations that I've had to deal with, and it's situations that that most pilots will deal with in their life. They're going to have to deal with emergency situations. And, and the reason why people don't make it out alive from these situations, they don't train for it. They don't think about really how the airplane um, works. I mean, all they do is they press buttons and I'm not a fan of that. I, I want people to learn how to fly a real airplane, which is, uh, which is really kind of difficult. Um, I know that uh, I know that we're running a little bit short on time. I know we just have a few more minutes left, but um, I wanted to kind of, uh, talk talk to you about one other thing. Uh, a lot of our listens, listeners are currently going through flight training. Uh, that's really our, our our main audience. And in in one phase or, or another, do you have any stories or challenges that you've had to overcome to uh, to shed some light for some students that kind of feel like there's no end of light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, what would you tell a pilot who who's kind of being hard on themselves? They're having trouble with their landings. They're they're having trouble with their cross country navigation or, or something like that. What would you tell a, a, a new young pilot who's working on uh, on that first solo or first cross country or something like that? Now that's an interesting question, Brandon, because I want to tell you something. I have to go back to what you said earlier. Feel the airplane. One of the things that I always used to impart to my students and still do, even though I'm not no longer a flight instructor, is unusual attitudes. Forget what, what's going on with the instruments, okay? If you can't feel the airplane, you got some problems, okay? So you need to learn that early. And I fear I'm not having nothing in flight schools because they do a, a great job. But it's a particular instructor who may not pay enough attention. And what I've found now is the instructors are paying more attention to managing the flight instead of flying the airplane. That's the key to the difference. If you can fly the airplane, you can do everything else. But the first thing you got to do is fly it. Because eventually, at some point, you're going to bring that thing down to land. And you better know how that reacts with ground forces or whatever. So even though the navigation is important, and the electronics are extremely important today, just to get into a glass cockpit now is what's taking over our world. And that's not right. You know, that's only an indication of what's happening to the airplane. You better have a feel of it. And I remember when I was a young pilot, you know, these old guys who I was flying with from World War II, 
they were old guys, they were saying, you know, it's seat of the pants flying and it actually means something. You can actually feel that airplane through the seat of your pants. And actually, you're right. Well, we've gone away from that now. It's everything is instrumentation. And I fear, I don't fear for the young pilots. I actually would like to encourage them to learn everything, but also ask more questions about the actual airplane. They need to know the airplane inside out and backwards. I don't even want them to start looking at the radios and all the rest of it. When I was in China, I wouldn't even let them pick up a, the, the mic to talk. I just let them fly the airplane. Just, just feel the airplane, okay? So those, to me, are, for young people, first of all, it's the greatest uh, experience in your life and the greatest career you can ever think about, okay? So don't give up the ship. Do not give up the ship with this. You just got to follow through. And one of these days, you know, you're coming to land, and for some reason, you can't judge when that the airplane's ready to flare. And then one day, boom, it just happens. It, it's just from, you know, you have to do it time and time again. That's why we used to have all these flights, you know, you're looking at how you land the airplane, all right? You have to feel it. I'll give you one little story on this. One of my first transition into 727, airplane, one of the loveliest airplanes I've ever flown. I remember in Trinidad and Tobago, we're doing some circuits at night. And the captain said to me, he said, Dave, I want to tell you something about this airplane. When I let you land it, you remember that when you had all these small airplanes, you keep pulling back, pulling back, pulling back before you touch down, right? He said, with a 727, it's a little different. Because of where the center of gravity is or the center of pressure, just before you touch, you actually have to push the stick forward to grease it on. Oh, holy smoke. Where, where would you learn this? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> because that's not the historical part of learning how to fly. It's really pulling back, pull back the power, trim it out, pull back the power, trim it out, and you flare. Well, flaring as a 727 is very different from the normal tricycle on the carriage airplane. So in terms of human, I mean, we can talk about this at some point again if you're interested. I love want to mentor young people now. I'm very interested in what's going on because... The, the industry is going through a real evolution right now. We're short of pilots again. It happens in a cyclical situation every 30 or 40 years. We're going through it now. Plus, we need a lot more female uh, pilots as well. That's the other issue. There's not enough women flying or learning to fly because I think maybe they think it's outside of their you know, area of expertise, but it's not. Some of the best pilots I've taught are women. They're really unique. First of all, they're dedicated to doing something the right way every time. Whereas a guy will just take it for granted. Hey, I took it on today. But a girl will tell you, you know something? I want to do it every time. So why, my landing's got to be perfect. So in terms of mentoring, guys, that's where I am today. I'm strongly mentoring for young people. Okay? Uh, there's scholarships up there. There's, there's so many different programs for kids today. Unbelievable. And that's how a lot of our listeners have gotten their start as well. Um, you know, we've had listeners who started with Young Eagles. Um, or a lot of people have gotten involved in, you know, in what's happening in their schools and, and their communities. And I think it's a pretty cool, um, cool way to experience aviation in the beginning. And I remember my first time in an airplane ever was a Young Eagles flight uh, I did when I was in Boy Scouts, actually. And I still know the guy that, that took me up um, and took us up and, actually pretty good friends uh, i met him you know what 10 15 years later down the line at riverside airport when i started flying so 
uh, it's kind of crazy how how your experiences can evolve and make you as a, a pilot evolve. Um, Dave, I think we're we're kind of running out of time here, but um, I wanted to thank you for being on the podcast with us today and for sharing your knowledge. You know, it's really great to be able to hear from such a knowledgeable pilot and someone who's done so many things. So, And we know that you've got a, a new book that's come out. I believe you're an author of two books, actually. Uh, and you also have a nonprofit that you're real fond of. Uh, I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about that book uh, in, a, in a minute or so and and uh, how they could find it, where they could uh, purchase it, and uh, where they could learn more about you. Well, I've got two sites out there. There is the first one, the new book. There's my bush flying book. They're all on Amazon. All right. Um, they can probably find it with my name from Amazon. That's the best place right now. It's available as an ebook as well as a paperback. All right. Um, and I've got a website, aviationhotshot.com. I don't know if you guys have looked at that, but that's got a lot of stories on there as well about my background. So that's that's where you can find me. And I'm really interested in what you guys do. Um, the proponent of flying, especially the Eagle stuff, guys, the EA does a fabulous job of getting to young people. Okay, So those are areas that really young people would be interested in. So it's not just about me. It's about what I can do for young people. And you're right, I do have a nonprofit set up for young people in South America, okay? So I'm just interested in helping out wherever I can. If you guys want some more information at some point, I'm always here. Thank you. That's so cool. Well, Dave, thank you so much again for uh, for being on with us today. Uh, it was really uh, special to hear some of your stories and uh, and and how mentorship looks looks uh, like to you in aviation. And uh, I... I could tell that we've barely scratched the surface of your 40 plus years of flying and aviation history. Uh, so I'm excited to kind of talk some more at a different time. And maybe we can go down the, the road of hearing a, a particular story and telling our listeners a, a how I survived that type of story or something. You know, Carson, I think that would be a great, uh, a great episodic uh, thing for us to do, how I survived that. I know AOPA does something similar uh, and it would be a real neat thing to, uh, to hear. I have two stories like that. One is about a fire in the airplane, and the other is overloaded. And that will take up a full hour, I'll tell you. How to right. revive that, okay? It's a whole unique story. It really is. So whenever That's fantastic. Ready, just let me know, all right? Will do. Absolutely. We'll... More about mentoring, okay? What if you guys need? you got a source here. Right? I love that. And let me If you get any students, no, let them go to my website. Send me an email. I'll mentor them. I'm interested in mentoring anybody now. That is absolutely amazing. And uh, I, I know there's several people that have taken me up on that offer because I have a similar offer as well. And uh, there are people that have taken me up and I've set up phone calls and had conversations with them and given them advice to what they should do in their aviation career. So uh, I think that is uh, commendable and, and, and really awesome that you would, you would allow other people to do that. So, um, well, we're going to wrap up the show. Thanks again, Dave. Um, by the way, everybody, I will have all of Dave's contact information in our show notes. Uh, we will have a link to his books uh, on Amazon. We will also have a link to his nonprofit, uh, as well as a way to uh, get a hold of him. Uh, so make sure you check our show notes if you'd like to get a hold of Dave. Uh, and uh, and even if you'd like to be mentored by him, I think that would be fantastic. I think I might want to be mentored by him. He sounds like a cool guy. Uh, and it looks like he's got enough seaplane flying stories where, uh, uh, where we can kind of chit chat about that for sure. But uh, as always, if you'd like to reach out to either one of us, me or Carson, you can reach us on our emails, brandon at aviationmentors.com, carson at aviationmentors.com. 
uh, and Dave, you can, uh, you can reach all of his information in our show notes. Also, don't forget to hit uh, follow, uh, subscribe, share on everything, please. Not just whatever you're listening to. Please go on Facebook, Instagram, you name it, um, or whatever streaming platform you're listening to us on. Um, it's a huge part of helping us grow the podcast and helping us grow our aviation community. And uh, make sure that uh, you check out uh, uh, Dave's books. Uh, I'm going to buy a couple of them as soon as we get off here. Uh, and uh, Amazon's going to deliver them. Hopefully same day, next day. I know they can print those books and send them out pretty quick. So uh, pretty awesome. Thanks again. Thank you, Dave, for being out with us. And as wrap up for the day, remember, here to guide you in your aviation journey. So fly safe and enjoy the ride. See you, everybody.